Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, a safe place for leading with your heart. Hey, thanks for being here. You, Me, Empathy is the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective, a collaborative mental health community designed to empower each of us to grow our capacity for empathy, vulnerability, and emotional wayfinding. Just a friendly reminder that this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. You can support the show by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts, following us on social media at Yumi Empathy and Feely Human, and joining the Feely Human Collective community at feelyhuman.co. And now your host, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of You, Me, Empathy. My name is Known Wells, and this is episode 196 on Anxious Kiddos with my guest, Erica Zeisman. Erica is a therapist who specializes in kiddos and teenagers with anxiety and uh, among other things. And this episode was wonderful. Erica and I explore how self-awareness is both beautiful and difficult, when your feelings are mislabeled, why it's never too early to have conversations with kids about mental health, and how anxiety shows up in children. Uh, Love this episode uh, for parents, a must-listen, truly, and uh, for the uncles and aunts out there, also a must-listen. So anyone, this is a must-listen episode. Um, Hope you enjoy it. Before we get to the episode, though, a couple of announcements. One is, as you noticed, this is episode 196. We're we're gearing up. We're getting close to episode 200, which is a, I don't know, it's a number. It's a number, but I feel, I feel excited about it. It's a milestone. I'm very excited about it. And as part of that, I would love to see uh, we get to 200 ratings of this podcast in Apple Podcasts before we get to 200 episodes. We have a, a month or so, and I think we can do it. So if you haven't left even just a rating, a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts for Yumi Empathy, please do it. Please tell your friends. Share widely. I appreciate you. The other announcement is tomorrow, October 12th, I am doing a workshop for The Mighty. It's called Empathy for Highly Sensitive People. It will cover a lot of the sort of foundational empathy stuff I talk about a lot in my workshops uh, and then sort of geared specifically toward people like me, maybe someone like you, who is sensitive, who is feely, who who has a tendency to take on too much. So that is uh, October 12th at 3 p.m. Pacific time. There is a link to it in the show notes for this episode at feelyhuman.co. I will also be sharing about it on uh, Instagram at uh, Yumi Empathy. So check that out and RSVP. Hope to see you there. And uh, the other thing is that uh, I appreciate you. I love you. I so, I'm so happy that you are here exploring your heart and your softness and your curiosity. That's what it's about, right? Sort of leaning deeper into these messy gray spaces that allow us to to heal and connect better and to maybe learn learn something new uh, hopefully learn something new every day right so thank you for doing that it takes courage oh the other thing i wanted to say is real quick is this past week on thursday i got to do 
a empathy workshop in, at the Laguna Laguna College of Art and Design, uh, which is something I've done before, both in person and online. But it's been more than a year, a year and a half since I've done it in person. And it was just so lovely. I loved it. So appreciative of all the the students there. And if you're listening to this, students, uh, I don't know if you would be, but if you are, hi, hello, you are wonderful. I'm so proud of you all. And I'm excited to see what you all create uh, in regards to your your homework uh, about empathy. So I, I just wanted to shout that out because it's something I love doing and I hope to do more of it. So if you're someone who is uh, a teacher um, of kids in, in college or whatever, uh, DM me, reach out feelyhuman at gmail.com or youmeempathy at gmail.com. Either of those email addresses will work. Would love to talk empathy with uh, your students. Anyways, let's get to the episode, shall we? Uh, This is a wonderful one with my guest, Erica Zeisman, on anxious kids. Enjoy. Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective. On this show, we explore the struggles, the triumphs, the brights, and the darks we face as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of You, Me, Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I'm already feeling my anxiety calming because I'm here with a therapist who specializes in anxiety and also a therapist who apparently loves brunch. It's Erica Zisman. Hello, Erica. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Happy to have you. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? I realized I didn't ask before I started. You know, everyone says Zisman. It's actually Zisman, but I've just learned to roll with it. I Everyone calls me Erica, so last names are just last names. They are, but I... I I like to be precise and clear. And if that's if that's your name, Zeisman, I should I should have done that. So I fucked up right off the top. <laughs> <laughs> that's totally fine. It makes it feel more comfortable already. The fact that uh, fuck ups are welcome. <laughs> they are. Well, we're we're representing two fallible, messy humans here. So that's what we are. Totally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I literally just had this conversation earlier with a coach that I work with about like showing messy parts feels hard, but it's so necessary. So, well, if we're not showing the messy, we're probably armored up, right? We're probably 
not maybe leaning into the discomfort that we need to as humans to to grow and learn and heal, etc. Yeah, it's really yeah. valid. I think that happens more often than not. We kind of armor up and have a hard time showing our flaws sometimes because people can be judgmental and it can be scary, but it is a part of life and growing. So I think you said that really validly and a good point. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm here for the guests just to validate my takes, my hot takes. Just kidding. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, for sure. So Erica, let's start with an emotional check-in. How are you feeling, friend? Good question. I mean, my first response is to always say good because that's, you know, the the response we all kind of give. But actually today, I'm feeling relatively calm, honestly. It's a really nice day. I'm from New York and it's nice out. And I had a nice morning and a slow morning and I talked to a lot of fun people. So today I feel calm. How are you? I'm I'm okay. I will get into that in a second. But I, I, I wondering about like calm calm is a word like i don't i don't know if i'm familiar with it super well in my own sort of day-to-day and i'm wondering like how does that feel exactly what is like what is what makes up calm for you specifically i think calm for me is when i feel like i have the freedom to go off the script of like what my day-to-day looks like and to not feel guilty or have that anxiety about it. Mm. So for me on Mondays, I, well, I actually just quit my clinic job. So I'm just doing private practice now. And I always had clinic clients on Monday. So right now I'm really just kind of free to do more of the creative stuff when it comes to work and things that I enjoy. And while I try to build some sort of structure because it's helpful for me, I think it's been just so nice to not feel like I have to do anything. So I think that's Mm. where the calmness comes in. And physically, I often feel it in like in my chest area or like my stomach area. If that all feels kind of like fluid and just, yeah, just like everything kind of digest and go through, it feels calm. Yeah. It's not, it's not an answer I normally would give. So I surprised myself a little bit, but I do. That's how I feel today. (laughs) I love, I love that. And I love that it's maybe potentially for you associated with this idea of, you know, aligning with the things that sort of bring us deeper into self, right? Like, so you're saying like, I'm taking this part off my plate and I get to sort of explore these other areas that feel really good to me. And maybe I haven't had enough time in those areas. Right. And, and I, mm-hmm. I think I can relate to that piece of it. Yeah. I, I try to live like, you know, like a values based life and try to really tap into that, but I would be lying if I said I'm always great at it. Cause I'm not, sometimes I downright suck at it and I like, you know, need to tantrum and freak out. But today has been a good day. I've gotten, I got up at a time I felt was necessary. I had a nice conversation on Instagram with somebody. I had my own life coach today. I just feel like those things feel very aligned to who I am. So it was a good day. If you would have talked to me two days ago, you would have got a completely different answer. Feelings are ever changing, right? They are indeed. Yeah, no, it's such a good call out. I, whenever my, my dog Maddie has, she's a very sensitive girl and she's, um, sensitive person, you know, she's a sensitive being like me. And so I remind myself that like some days she has more sensitive days. Some days she has harder days, just like me, right? It's like a, dogs can be a good sort of mirror in that way, you know? 
or animals in general, I guess. So, uh, to honor your question to me, I, I'm, I, I'm not doing super well, to be honest. Like I, I'm just, I have depression. I have clinical depression, major depressive disorder actually. And so I go through periods of time stretches that are deeply oppressive and they feel meaningless and overwhelming and, uh, you know, uh, passing suicidal ideation just sort of perpetually. And it's, I tell myself and I tell my community that it's, for me, it's a reminder that like, hey, I've been here before. I know how to do it. I know how to get through this, right? I, I've survived before and I can do it again. Mm-hmm. And also at the same time, it's just fucking hard. And so I'm in that right now. Yeah, I mean, that sucks. I can't say that I've ever been suicidal before, but I can say that there is a very big difference between fleeting suicidal ideation and from you know being active with a plan and all of that. But I think yeah. it's important to honor the difference, one, and two, that sometimes life is hard and it really sucks. And sometimes there's no reason that you feel sucky. It just kind of happens. And it's obvious that you're, you, well, what you're saying is you go through periods of this and it's just awful. And I've yeah. definitely had my moments of that more so with anxiety and things like that. But I mean, it's awesome that you share this with your community and you're giving like a platform and a space for the shitty stuff too. Well, I think we have to, I mean, I, I think we have to at a certain point, I think, preceding that and you can speak to this as a as a therapist preceding all of that sharing right is the work of knowing self right like figuring out what's safe and when it's safe to share right and Mm -hmm. who your people are and who you should share with and figuring out all the boundaries around that and protections and self-care around all that um but yeah, I'm at a place now where I can share it and feel comfortable doing so and feel protected in doing so and and doing so to the point of connection, to the point of allowing others in to relate, right? Yeah. yeah. I think th- the idea of like self-awareness kind of struck me because I think that as therapists, we're always trying to get our clients more self-aware and to, you know, have insight into what's going on and some come in with all this self-awareness and others come in with zero. And you know what, as a therapist and as somebody who goes therapy, it sucks sometimes to become self-aware. And then you, (laughs) it's kind of that whole phrase like ignorance is bliss. When you're ignorant to something, it's true. You don't have to deal with it and you don't have to swim through all of the, the hard and icky and messy stuff. So, I mean, as a therapist, I just have to be there for my clients, but as a person who's been through it, sometimes I hate that I'm so self-aware. It becomes just almost like a, blockage it's really hard so it is hard and it's scary and it's uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and it's like what what is always or what has been helping me when when sort of i've been doing my work and becoming sort of more self-aware and it's you know as you know it's a it's a lifetime journey yeah i what helps me sort of like lean into more vulnerability and openness and sort of the work of self-awareness because it's connected to community. Ultimately it's connected to the people around us. Right. I do believe that like, it's so human to sort of hunker down into our stuff. Right. And, and be, you know, ignorant as bliss, as you mentioned, but I think that's a, 
it's an understandable place. It's also a place that's not maybe um, sort of conscious or uh, taking into consideration the sort of the bigger collective piece, right? I think we serve others best and more wholly and fruitfully when we can be more self-aware. Yeah, I I, agree. I tend to agree with that. I think it takes some time to get to that point, like you were saying sure. before about being able to share kind of your struggles. I actually just said in an earlier conversation, especially as a therapist, I have to do this. It's like, am I sharing my struggles from a place of like a wound, like an open wound that still really, really hurts? Or am I sharing it from something that's a little bit more healed? And mm-hmm. as a person, I'll share my wounds with you all day long if you want to know. As a therapist, I have to kind of be cognizant about Am I sharing from a place of still like struggle? Because I don't want to put that on a client. But totally. Yeah, I mean, we all have them. We all have our wounds and we all have stuff from childhood. We have stuff from now. We also are living in a goddamn pandemic. So I mean, there's so much going on on yeah. a daily basis. Yeah. You t- you mentioned wounds, you mentioned anxiety. Is is were you an anxious kid? Yeah, I, I don't think I knew I was anxious. I definitely didn't have the word anxious in my yeah. vocabulary until I was much older. But looking back and kind of doing that work, I, I was definitely an anxious kid. I think it got kind of put on as shy a little bit or mm-hmm. I was an only child. So I think it also came on like I just wasn't used to being around a lot of people, but it was 100% anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I relate to the shy sort of ang- as anxiety piece for sure. I was a uh, I was labeled shy, and there was certainly a lot of anxiety, but only in retrospect, right? There's mm-hmm. so much. Uh, it's amazing the when we can do some of this work, how much we can glean about sort of our past experiences and who we were, um, and 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 discern that like hey maybe i wasn't a shy kid maybe i was just anxious like that's that's an important mm-hmm. that's a nugget of wisdom that can sort of take us take us further right totally and that's why i also like working with i work with a lot of kids i also work with young adults and parents and teens obviously but i love working with children honestly in like that preteen age because i can kind of help discern for them are you shy or are you anxious? And like, what can your family do and what can you do to kind of get out of that bubble? Cause there's a big difference. I mean, people who are introverted and shy versus feeling a lot of anxiety. And I remember as a kid, for me, the anxiety would get so bad that I would be like avoiding things. Like I wouldn't mm-hmm. want to go to a certain family event or things like that. And then it became that I was just being bratty or didn't want to go. And I had Difficult. wonderful parents, totally. Yeah. And I had wonderful yeah. parents, but you know, it's still a thing. And it's something that I think kids need more language around and I'm helping kind of parents get more language around too. So Mm. when you were sort of expressing those or in those anxious moments as a kid, like, did you feel like you were alone in it? Did you feel like you were like frustrated in it? Cause I, like, I, I, I know Mm -hmm. for me, there was a lot of like, I just like, even if I couldn't name it, there was this deep feeling that I wasn't being seen. Yeah, I I think those are the wounds I deal with even now of like, or I mean, wounds that I'm working on healing of this idea of not being seen or not being understood or not Mm. being um, like my needs were too much. Those are like the things Mm -hmm. that really come up for me now. And obviously differently as an adult than a kid. 
And I think I got so much attention and love as a kid. That wasn't the problem. It was the problem that they were mislabeling what I was feeling. So I felt alone in, in events. Like I said, I was only a child and no problem being an only child, but I would go to family functions and everyone would have siblings. Or when we got older, I was a little too young. So everyone would have like boyfriend, girlfriends. So I was always kind of like isolated somehow, you know, and I didn't really fit in with my family. So, or like my extended family. So that was a struggle. Um, yeah. And I think as I got older, I just detached myself and like found my own friend group and things like that. But I guess that's a long winded way of answering your question to say like, yeah, there was definitely moments of just feeling misunderstood or alone. Yeah. Assuming your parents are wonderful and supportive and and loved you and all that stuff. And that's wonderful, right? Now you have this knowledge, right? As a therapist, right? You're a, you work with children, you work with anxiety, you being an anxious child. What do you think your parents could have done differently? Or what tools do you think, like what, what could have they said to you that would have made it better? Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, really good question. I mean, I, I don't know that they could have made it better, but they could have walked along with me a little bit more. And I know that's like a cliche kind of therapist thing mm. to say, but the truth is like my mom has her own anxiety. She still does. And now there's, you know, there's a dialogue around that now. And I think that's what we were missing is the dialogue around that when we were younger. Mm. So I think, and that's also like a product of the times. I was born in the nineties. Mental health wasn't a huge conversation. I was, you know, a good student. I was a little bit perfectionist. Like, so there was no real like points but I think had my parents had the the education around it, they would have done more. But I guess to further answer your question, I think I needed to hear like it was okay to not want to do certain things. Mm. And at the same time, I also need to say here, we're going to do this, but if here is something we can do if you're feeling overwhelmed. Like I needed somebody to say that to me. Because you know, when you have a child with anxiety, you don't want to give in to everything they want because that perpetuates anxiety. But you also want to kind of give them uh, some steps. Like if say they're afraid or they're nervous or worried to go to a pub family party, can they, is there a space they can go in when they're at the family party if they're feeling overwhelmed for five minutes to go breathe or to go right. just being quiet? I'm still a person who, much as I like people and I love meeting people and socializing, I still need a lot of downtime. So I don't want to say that's a bad thing, but I think we just need more support. But for parents now, it's really about having the conversation around mental health. And I don't think your child's ever too young to have the conversation. I've had conversations with kids as young as four about suicide before. And it's, yeah, it's hard Mm. and it's scary and it's um, a heavy topic, but there's ways you can share it. So Mm. yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things we can do. Yeah, no, I love that answer. It, it, what it seems to me, it's it. There needs to be this sort of foundation of having a conversation about this stuff openly, mm-hmm. not yeah. perfectly because there's no such thing, right? But just mm-hmm. openly, so your kids can see that, like, oh, mom and dad, uh, my parents are talking about this stuff. It's okay, like even if like you don't, because it becomes to feel like it's safe to be who you are and all of your messiness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I do this yeah. thing on my Instagram. Like I have an Instagram for just my therapy. It's really like a mental health platform and it's like, 
it's how to talk to your kid about, and it's something about a hard subject. Like I've done divorce, I've done the pandemic, I've done suicide, like things like that. And it's almost like a, obviously like almost a dumbed down version, but like a blueprint for parents of like how to start those conversations. Because like you said, they don't have to be perfect. They're never going to be perfect. And you're also allowed to say to your kid, I don't have the answers, but let's figure it out together. I think parents so often want to give their child the answer or they think they have to. And it's just not the case. You don't have to have the answers. Mm, That's so interesting. So you think like a lot is not said because they're worried that they're not going to have the right answer? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And then the other part is maybe feeling like your child's not ready for that or to like shield Mm. them. Mm -hmm. Because I do believe, I mean, there's a lot of people that are hard. Parenting is hard, right? We all agree parenting is super hard. I don't have children, but I know it's very hard just from all of the work I've done with parents. But most people who have kids want to do right by their kids. They just don't have the education. And I also think that, we hear all this stuff of like your child's too young or your child shouldn't know that yet. Or like, let's shield them from the world, but the world's going to catch up with us. Like it's always going to catch up with us. There's only, especially with the internet, there's so much we kids know so much more than we think they do. The conversation I've had with certain kids that are nine, 10 and what they understand about politics, religion, the pandemic is sometimes more insightful than me. Like they know so much. So just, to know that they can go to their parents to have the dialogues is just so valuable. Yeah. And there's, I I say it sort of relentlessly on this show, but I think it bears repeating, which is kids are sort of picking up and uh, sort of way more insightful than us sort of dumb adults give them credit. (laughs) Right. Like we, and it's because of that, I think it's a systemic thing. It's because of this. We have to protect our kids. We have to protect our kids. But to your point, so I was born in 81. I'm 40. I was raised in a time where, yeah, I didn't have internet sort of growing up. Right. And so I'm not, I'm not getting access to like Google and things like that. So I'm not, I'm not privy to all of the things. Right. But kids today, to your point, like mm-hmm. they're, they're on the interwebs, right. They're searching YouTube. They're, trolling people on YouTube, whatever they're doing, they're like, they're active and they're engaged and they're, they're being sponges. Right. So like protecting them is just a, I mean, what is that even doing? I think what we, the mistake we make as adults with kids now with all of their access to just information is we either a tell them we, they shouldn't know that or Mm. we, we, we give them the idea that, it's not a conversation that's appropriate to have. Like if your child, for instance, asks you about sex and they're nine, probably not trying to have sex, but they're thinking they're, they read something, they saw something and you say, oh, we'll talk about that when you're older. All that tells your kid is, hey, where you can't talk to mom and dad about it. That's what it teaches them. Whereas you can say, you could say to your kid, oh my gosh, I wasn't ready to have this conversation with you. What do you understand? What do you know? And then go from there. It doesn't need to be this scary, big conversation all the time. And I think parents always feel like, 
okay, here we go. Let's have this conversation. And it doesn't need to be like that. So many times kids are like, okay, that works. Thanks for that answer. Like, yeah, it's not as yeah. scary as we think it is. <laughs> well, it's because topics like mental health or sex are taboo, right? Like mm-hmm. culturally, we've like somehow made them like scary places to go when in fact, as you know, we all have mental health, children, mm-hmm. you know, babies through adults, right? So yeah, talking about, yeah, I know. Like whenever I sort of as a kid sort of felt that like, oh, I'm, I shouldn't be privy to this information. Like I am of course going to be deeply curious and sort of explore to my heart's content, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And then you're going to ask your friends what they know and then you're going to, totally. then there's going to be more people and you're going to figure it out, but you probably aren't going to figure out a hundred percent right because we don't have the capacity to understand certain things to the extreme of what we're reading on the internet. I mean, I read things on the internet all the time and I'm like, I don't understand. Like, what is this? Somebody help me discern something. Well, and then there's the, you know, when you're talking to your friends about it or whatever, as a kid and you're trying to discern what a blow job is or something, (laughs) you have the, the, the telephone effect, right? Like it becomes sort of, as it's sort of passed through person to person becomes this distorted truth. Right. So as a parent, you like, let's, let's talk about the truth of what this is and what you're, you know, like, let's, let's treat you not like this protective little sensitive person that can't, that has to, we have to protect you in order to like save you from the world. Like you're part of the world. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like generation Z or whatever. They get a lot of crap about all their stuff on the, on social media and things like that. And the truth is like some of these kids have more knowledge about certain things than I do because they're so invested in advocacy and they're so invested in our planet and mental health and things that probably, or some of the reason is probably because they've been exposed because Mm -hmm. the parents that are millennials or whatever, they've been more exposed. So there is, like you said before, the systemic thing of like what we become more comfortable talking about. But I mean, my overall arching goal is really for mental health to be as easy to talk about as physical health and things like that. And, you know, I can go on a rampage about everything wrong with that part of, you know, our society too, but we just have to be willing to have these dialogues about all the weird, all the hard, all the messy, all the ugly, whatever. Otherwise, it's just going to be hard. It's going to be harder than it needs to be. Yeah. So Erica, what, what sort of inspired you to get into this field? So I was one of those kids that like, didn't know what they wanted to do. I always was like a helper. I always enjoyed being with people and like helping people. And I always was like a camp counselor and like things like that. So when you I, have, you have camp counselor vibes for sure. You know? <laughs> I I see so that. Funny. You do. You do. Yeah. Ironically, I'm like the least religious person ever, but I was a, a Bible camp counselor. Oh, there really you go. strange, but the kids were awesome. Yeah. So I mean, I did a lot of things with kids. I was always really interested in that. But when I went to, when we were trying to pick college, no idea where I wanted to go, was really anxious about leaving home, all of the things. I ended up staying home, going to a school on Long Island where I'm from, didn't know what I was going to do, eventually found psychology, loved psychology. And then I graduated a little bit early. And then with that year and a half between like um, college and grad school, I really tried to figure out what I wanted to do. And I still didn't know. But I ended up choosing social work because A, you didn't have to take the GRE. B, because there was a lot of options. And C, I was like, I'm not going to be a therapist. Mm. Flash forward. Did my first year internship in a school. I loved it. Second year internship was supposed to be trauma-informed. 
And I said, I didn't want to be a therapist, but I want to do something trauma related. They put me in a clinic, which was all I did was therapy. And I loved it. And I stayed there for five years. It's the job I just quit. And then, um, yeah, I think what made me switch my mindset about being a therapist is all the people I got to connect with on such a deep level and they trusted me and all the stories I got to hold and yeah. And just like watching people flourish and even if they weren't flourishing, watching them be okay, sharing the messy part is what Mm. kind of felt so good for me. But then when I made the switch from clinic to private practice, which is, was really hard for like my social work brain because I want to help everybody is it freed up my time to go back to doing other stuff, to go back to volunteering, to go back to doing my podcast, like doing things that still kind of spread that message of mental health. Mm. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's really the people, it's really the clients there. I've met some just like wonderful human beings as clients. Even the hardest clients have been just so, I don't know, just fun and curiosities. And I don't know, just, just fun. It's been fun for me. I love that. It's truly about the people. I, I love that. So what what makes a hard client? I think it's a few odd things. I, one of the things that come to mind is it's hard when clients are not, not even talkative, but they're not open yet. It takes a while, but mm. that's more of like a challenge for me of like, okay, let's see, like, we're going to see what we can do. I think where that becomes a little harder is when it is a child or a teen and a parent is more involved. The parent wants obviously like their child to quote unquote get better or whatever. And fix they have my to kid. Be there. Yeah. Fix my kid. It's usually like, um, do you want to do therapy? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I, so that can be difficult. Um, I think what's really hard to have a hard client, it's not necessarily the client. It's usually the systems that surround. Like it's mm-hmm. the fact if a child is, has a broken home or a child, you know, comes from a line of a lot of people have mental illness, just things that are like out of my control that quote unquote make people risk. Like there's risk factors involved. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it hard because I only have so much control in that arena. And, you know, I had kids that I just discharged. I had for five years and they're going with a new therapist. And, you know, I worked really hard to get them to their new therapist and make sure it was a smoother transition people don't usually do that with clinics. And those are the kids who are more likely to, you know, be incarcerated, go to drugs, like do all those things that people deem bad, Mm. which is really just because they're alone, honestly. And it's hard. So that's what I think a hard client is for me is just when the systems aren't in place to help them. Right. We could probably talk endlessly about the systems. The systems that fail our kids, the systems of education, the prison industrial complex, all of it. Yeah, it's it's depressing Um, and it breaks my heart. And but I I still I am grateful that you and others are at least trying, at least trying to sort of show that they're not alone, show that whatever they're feeling or experiencing is not their fault right you know mm-hmm. like that that's that's the kind of stuff that all of us need to hear i think yeah i mean obviously there's so much we can say there's so many systems that need fixing but i what i like to think about it is like we have to like change our perspective sometimes for having conversations like i had a conversation with somebody who worked with a lot of 
gang kids. And I am not somebody, I've never worked with a child that I know of that was involved in that. But what he kind of opened my eyes to was the fact that a lot of these kids join gangs because it's a family. It becomes, it becomes mm. a family to them. And yeah. just that mindset switch for me of like, these aren't dangerous kids. These are kids who are looking for a family. They're looking for protectors. And he even said that like a lot of the kids, if they're able to get out of the gang, they, that the gang people support them. Like they, they want them to succeed. So I just think mm. like, if we can have these conversations and separate like the good, the bad, the bad kids from the good kids and all of this stuff, that at least things could be a little bit easier. Again, yeah. not going to fix everything, but it'll be a little bit easier. Yeah. Obliterate the binary thinking, you know, and, and recognize that all humans desire to belong, right? We all want mm-hmm. belonging, you know, and we're going to find it where we can you know, and if yeah. there aren't other options, then yeah, we'll we'll join a gang, right? As an example. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's not up to me to be judgmental towards other people's choices as whether as a person as a therapist. It's I really need to know my own boundaries, know my own values, but as a therapist, I need to see hold the space for them. And I know that's like a cliche term in therapy, but that really is what we're doing is hold the space of like, this is a safe space. These are the things I would need to share as a protection for you. But other than that, like I'm here for you and I'm, you know, I'm here for you until you don't want me to be anymore. And a lot of kids I work with, that's the first time they've ever heard that. Mm. Even the kids, like the transitioning, some of these kids to a new therapist I've had for, like I said, five years was really hard, hard for me too, because these are kids I watched grow up. But I had to, and prior to the pandemic, I may have done this differently. But after the pandemic, I said to all of them, I said, you know, like, yes, you have a new therapist. I go, but I'm not going anywhere. You still have my number. You can still reach out. We can figure this out. Because when you work with kids, especially, you can't just leave because it feels like an abandonment. So they may never text me again, and that's okay. But the fact that they know they can was just so important for me to, like, instill. Yeah, that's important. So I'm curious about the boundaries piece. You mentioned boundaries. So I, I talk to a lot of therapists. I, you know, in the work that I do in this, this podcast and Feely Human, I've had to, you know, I'm not a mental health professional like you, but I've had to establish boundaries like for myself, right? Because when you're in the space of mental health, right, it's, it could, uh, and if you're a helper person, like you said, like I'm a helper mm-hmm. person. It can become overwhelming and you're trying to take too much on, you know, all this stuff that we do, right? How did that, how did you sort of journey into boundaries with sort of starting therapy and where you're at now? I mean, as a person, I'm constantly navigating that, like outside of therapy, constantly navigating that and figuring out what feels good to me. And I think that's always going to change. But I think that for me, it's having the space to say no. And having people that are okay with my no, Mm. it was something that I worked really hard on as a therapist. I mean, you set, I set boundaries within like the first few minutes of meeting somebody in sense of like, this is, this is how we reach each other. This is when I'm available. And, you know, I've chosen that I'm, I'm accessible to my clients whenever they need me, but doesn't mean I'm going to answer right away. It means, you know, you can send me an email, you can send me a text and I will always respond 
but it might take a two days, might take a day, like that kind of thing. But I think for me, as far as like not giving so much energy and like preserving my own energy and my own, just everything that I have my own vibes and all of that. It's about how many clients I work with. It's about the types of clients and like the quote unquote issues I deal with kind of Mm -hmm. thing. I've chosen kind of to limit myself a little bit to people who deal with anxiety, people deal with perfectionism, people who parenting stuff more so than to work with somebody who has bipolar disorder or borderline personality disorder and not because I can't and not because I don't love those types of clients because that's more dreaming for my energy. Mm. So I feel like I can help more people and be with more people when I work with certain stuff. And that that's really hard for therapists to do in the beginning because we feel like we're turning people away, but I'm able to keep those boundaries by having a network of other therapists who love working with those types of clients and being able to send clients their way where they're going to feel they're going to get the best help they can. So I, I, but I also think boundary work is ever changing and always kind of going on and takes time, but yeah, that's kind of some of the stuff I do. I love that. What about the sort of emotional side of it, right? You mentioned energy, you mentioned time, you mentioned sort of how they can contact you, stuff like that. Like what about, cause like I'll just preface this by saying, the emotional work of boundaries is like the hardest one for me. Yeah. Right? Like as someone who cares so deeply about the world and, and I'm an Enneagram too. So I have to like be, Same. be sort of <laughs> in protective of my sort of emotions and my emotions are everywhere always. Right. And so how do, what about emotional boundaries as a therapist? Sometimes I'm awful at it. Honestly, sometimes I'm just bad at it. I, mm. I, you know, like I said, leaving some of these clients, not with them, but outside of being with them, I'd cry my eyes out and be, feel awful and like second guess myself. And um, that's where supervision comes in handy for me when it came to mm. like that whole process and kind of talking in my own therapy. But I think emotional boundaries, I think it's important to feel your feelings. I, I think that I'm not somebody, I'm not going to ball my eyes out in therapy, but it's appropriate to get teary eyed when you're saying goodbye to somebody you've known for five years. It's yeah. not appropriate to be stoic. It doesn't make sense. And I think we've been kind of, we've been told and as therapists that like we're in at some point, we're not supposed to cry or we're not supposed to do this. And to my opinion, that's all antiquated. So I will share if I need to and say, you know, like I'm really going to miss you and that's okay. So that's some of the ways outside of like the therapy, I guess, space. I just know certain things that help me. And like, I, I'm a big writer. Like I like to journal. I love to read like things like that just help me to feel better or just to feel more like myself. But I think it's really just about getting it out in some capacity, getting mm-hmm. out the emotions. Cause I think if we push it down, it's going to come out in a way that doesn't need to, but yeah. I'm an Enneagram too also. And <laughs> I, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard being an empath in any type of way because I mean, all this stuff happening in the world, like I feel very deeply. And I think I also feel the good really deeply too. So I try to feel both, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. I love that. So regarding the parents of your clients, right? Like, so you work with kids who have anxiety or struggling in some way. And, you know, these kids are minors, right? So, like, how often are you having to sort of navigate or maybe even discerning that it's really maybe 
the parents' mental health themselves mm-hmm. that's sort of, you know, quote, like oppressing or, or causing trouble for the kiddo? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to this. Mm. I will say that I have almost always had really good relations with the parents in some capacity. I don't know why. I've always thought it was going to be a struggle because I started <laughs> off very young and working with parents that were older than me. Yeah. And for some reason, I never had that much pushback. And I think it's, if I had to guess, it's probably because I've always had a really good bond with the kid. And I think because I, it wasn't, you know, they were, the kid wasn't fighting the parents to come see me. I think maybe that's why. But I have those conversations with parents up front. I say to them, you know, like, I, I think your kid can benefit from therapy for X, Y, and Z reasons. This is how therapy goes with me. I, you know, this is what I will share. This is what I will not share. And the kid knows this too. And then if I feel like a parent benefits from therapy, I offer it. I don't offer it from, I most time will say like, you know, Hey, like, I think you could utilize therapy for X, Y, and Z. Like, how do you feel about that? And I've had some ther- parent families say, yeah, and take me up on it and go and I've cooked them up with a therapist and I have some say, yeah, never do it. And I've had some say, absolutely not. And those conversations are awkward and uncomfortable, <laughs> but they're not unfixable. And, right. you know, I'll do, I'll bring parents into sessions sometimes. I have collateral sessions and all of that. But I also just kind of remind the child of like, this is still your sp- your space, even though your mom wanted you to be here first. Mm. And I also say like, I love that. Yeah. I also say, you don't, we don't have to change what you don't want to change. I mean, I've had kids who are like, no, I like that. I am up till two in the morning and I'm like, all right, I don't love that. But if that's what you want, then all right, we'll, we'll try it. And you know, it's kids still have autonomy, even though they're kids. And I think that I mean, I was a kid up till two in the morning and I still passed all my tests. Did my parents love it? No, but (laughs) it'll be okay. So I try to work with parents on like value systems and like reasonable goals and like things that really matter. There are some parents who will come in every session and they'll, you know, come in before the kid and they'll say, he didn't eat all his food today or he didn't do this. And I'm like, is that really important? Like, we don't, I don't care. (laughs) Like, we don't care about that. So it's just like a, it's a communication thing. I think because mm. I try to have like straight talk, straight up communication with the parents, I think that's probably why it's a little bit more successful, but ultimately the kids, the one in therapy. So they're yeah, the I love that. How often are you like, let, let's say the parents are coming to you and they're saying, Hey, my kiddo is doing this thing and doing that thing. Like to me, that feels like, you know, the staying up late or the whatever, the not eating the lunch or whatever, like <laughs> seems to me maybe just byproducts of like the deeper thing that needs to be talked about. Yeah. Yeah. It pretty much always is. I think yeah. that it's always, or it's something that stemmed from their childhood that they thought was important. Mm. Like they thought like their mom and dad always told them they had to eat everything in their meal or something very minor that we don't think is important, but then it comes back up. I usually will listen I, I don't necessarily always respond to like a parent as far as that, because it's usually just them wanting to get it out. And then if it becomes a thing all the time where every day they're telling me this kid's not going up, I'll talk to the kid about it. I always tell the kid like, Hey, mom and dad reached out to me. Do you want to know what they said? And they say, no. Then I'll say, okay. If they say, yeah, I tell them an abridged appropriate version of what the conversation was yeah. because I'm not having conversations with the parents about, you know, anything the child told me in therapy. So it's kind of like this dynamic of like, how do I share? How do I not? 
And I mean, personally, and I've said this to a lot of my clients, if your child's in therapy, I think it's beneficial for you to be in therapy at the very least to learn how to navigate your child's therapy with them. That's like at the very least. And some parents do it. Some parents don't, but it's helpful. I mean, it's helpful if you know how to navigate the therapy process that you're putting your kid through. Uh, 100%. Like it makes total sense to me. Like if, if you've, if you as a parent have never been to therapy and you're sending your kid to therapy, you're not sort of, uh, seeing the, the kid is like being witness to language and a process and an experience that you can't relate to. Right. So don't mm-hmm. you want to relate to your kid? Right. Like that, that seems like a no brainer yeah. to me. Totally. And I yeah. feel like, I don't know that parents, all parents fully understand what therapy is. Mm. I think sometimes parents think it's something like you said before to fix your child. Like I, a lot of kids that I see that have ADHD, it feels like, you know, the school or the school, the doctor said they should see a therapist to work on skills for ADHD, work on organization, work on executive functioning. And yes, I do do a lot of that stuff with the child. But ADHD also can come with a lot of anxiety. It can come with depression. It can come with not understanding why they need to be disorganized. Like there's so many other components. So it really becomes like a team effort. I can, you know, give your child the best organization skills in the world. If you don't follow through with them while they're home, it doesn't matter. So yeah, I mean, it it's helpful if the parent is on board, but if the parent is not on board and they just, you know, pay for their child to go to therapy, then the best thing I can do is be a support for the child. Right. It, it seems like the sort of the, the parent who wants to like, yeah, fix my kid, you know, get, get them the skills that they need, et cetera. Like to me, like I get why that happens. I think it's a, it's a byproduct of the system, right? It's a byproduct mm-hmm. of the system of like, I mean, you see it in mental health always or Instagram, et cetera. It's just like, do these quick things and you're going to achieve success or whatever. Yeah. Like that, that is the, that is language that is, all over the place right so like Mm -hmm. and i get it right like it's it may be easier maybe that's the ignorance is bliss piece of it that we were talking about before but the truth is the sooner all of us can sort of dip into the reality that it it's fucking messy and that's scary and uncomfortable but the the more we're in it the the easier it gets right yeah yeah i think the more we embrace the fact that everyone is so such an individual and the more we embrace the fact that nothing is going to go exactly according to plan and it's not going to go, not everyone, your ch- your two children are not going to be the same. The more we embrace that and have those conversations and be more open to like just the choices and the differences and all of that, the easier a lot of things will be. Yeah. I, I think that happens in so many environments is we're just so unwilling to consider changing our views or consider having conversations that we miss out on so many opportunities and so many with kids, especially we miss out on so many great things that your kid's doing because you're too focused on the things that aren't happening that you always thought would. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. You're, you're robbing yourself of presence really. Um, yeah, I don't like that. Um, for the parents listening, Erica, can you, 
talk a little bit about, you mentioned shyness before as sort of maybe a, a indicator that a kid's having anxiety. Can you share a little bit more about some other ways that anxiety might show up in a kiddo? Yeah. I mean, it can show up a lot of different ways. Like it can show up more physically. So it could show up as like your child always complaining of headaches or stomach aches or vomiting or things like that. Mm. It also can show up as constant worry. It can show up as low confidence. It can show up as, you know, an unwillingness to try new things. There's so many different ways. And that's why it's hard for a parent to notice because there's so many things But my rule of thumb is if your child is acting different than you feel like they normally would, then let's pay attention to something. If your child, you know, came out of the womb, they're just an anxious person, that kind of thing. Then I think it's, are you getting that intuition that something's going on? There's always Mm. some sort of tell in some regard. But again, if you're a parent who has used the word anxious before, if you explain your child what it is, if you explain the emotions to them, your child is going to learn that emotional intelligence when they're five, four, six, whatever. And you're not going to have to pay so much attention to the symptoms because you're going to, they're going to have the language. Right. So I think like that's what's important. I mean, I think a lot of times I see in young kids is usually some sort of physical symptoms of always complaining of a headache. And, you know, you go, if you go to the doctor and you, cause that's always the first step and they've ruled out anything physical, it's usually some sort of mental illness, whether it's mm. anxiety or ADHD or depression or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you ever work with teenagers? Yeah, I would say right now, most of my clients are between 11 and 14, but I have a bunch of little ones and then I have some college kids too. So it okay. kind of changes. I, yeah, I, teenagers, teenagers are a whole different breed. <laughs> They're really fun though. It depends. Like I, teenagers who have been through the ringer and been to therapists since they were four, they're like kind of tired of it. They just get like tired of the same stuff. And I also think that usually has a lot to do with the parent. Mm. But as what do you mean anxiety, same stuff? Like they feel like they're always dealing with the like, let's do better in school or let's do whatever their parent initially put them in therapy for. If that was the case, it's like they're always dealing with the same conversation. Like whether it's, if they have ADHD, they've been dealing with like, let's try to be organized since they were five. Like, right. Right. And when you're a teenager, all the, regardless of what your mental health quote unquote issue is or whatever your diagnosis is, there's so much stuff that's kind of come up stuff with friends, stuff with relationships, gender identity, um, sexual orientation, so much college stressors about there. Like there's so much stuff that comes up that therapy really becomes more about like navigating transitions through life than it does mm-hmm. about the initial diagnosis. I wish I would have had therapy or tried therapy as a teenager. Cause I, I just think of myself as a teenager, Erica, and I was angry and I was confused and I was just very lost, you know? And I, yeah. I think anger is probably a big one. I'm I'm assuming anger is a big feeling that you address in teenagers. Yeah. It's almost like this, this frustration tolerance is low because honestly, it's supposed to be when you're a teenager. You just don't have the capacity, but it's also like a, you never feel understood. Yeah. And I think even the teenagers who are most, they're functioning well, a lot of times they still don't feel understood. I think that's like the missing component. But I mean, 
you mentioned yourself as a teenager. Was therapy even an option? Was that like a conversation that you even kind of knew? Definitely not. Not at not at 13. I mean, I think the mm-hmm. first time I tried therapy, I was, it wasn't until my 20s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, yeah, no, there's, I had no awareness of any sort of mental health support as a 13 year old, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the only, I'll be honest, the only thing I really knew about therapy, like in high school was really a few friends that I had who had more severe mental illness, things, you know, like where they could be hospitalized, stuff like that. Mm. But I think mental health was um, geared more towards people who really needed it. And um, that's unfortunate because there's a lot of people who I think everyone can benefit from it. But I remember distinctly my senior year of high school, we had a classmate who committed suicide. And then two months later, a classmate's father committed suicide. So my whole second semester of school was my my high school trying to figure out how to deal with this because it was a popular kid. Not that that matters. It was a popular kid, so it impacted a lot of people. And they didn't have mental health support. They had to bring people in. And I went to a privileged high school that had nothing nothing prepared for something like that. And I think that was really my first experience with like, oh, wow, mental health is like a big thing. Mm. And yeah, I mean, and that was 2010. Wow. You're, uh, you're a youngster, Erica. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, like, I hear that and it's devastating to me because I, you know, you do your work as a therapist and it's beautiful and so important and foundational and I do my work and it's important and I believe in it. And at the same time, like, like I just want to reach more people, right? I want to reach kids, right? Like I, I've been doing like, you know, workshops for like college students and stuff about some of this stuff and that feels good. But like, I want to like even get, get, get to kids earlier, right? Like talk about feelings, talk about empathy, talk about this stuff so much earlier. And I, I hope that that changes and I hope that I can be a part of it as sort of as part of Feely Human in some way because I mean there's just there's just going to be more suffering right resistance leads to more suffering right in in our culture so like if we can yeah. talk to kids to your point earlier about like yeah talk to your kids you know about this stuff it doesn't need to be the gruesome details but yeah. like let's have conversations and let's 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 allow for curiosity around these topics within our systems. And I, I do think it's happening. Unfortunately, I think it only happens is in states that can afford it, like California, New York, like those types of states. I don't think necessarily like Iowa, Mississippi are getting it, unfortunately, but it is happening where there's a lot of programs being implemented. There's a lot of mindfulness programs in Long Island right now where feelings are becoming you know, all the rage and it's trending and all of that. I know mm-hmm. a girl who is from New York city who does a whole program on consent and teaching kids and parents what consent actually is and not in relation to sex, just consent in general and having that autonomy. So the programs are there. I think it's really about like mental health advocates, like infiltrating kind of the systems a little bit more. And it is slowly happening. I mean, when I interned in a school when I was in grad school, I ran a program on um, body rights so it was a little bit about consent but really just about like knowing your body is your body and that nobody has the right to touch you and 
to seven year olds. And these mm. conversations were weird and hard. And like we said before, but appropriate. Yeah. So I, I think we need to do a better job of having those conversations younger. And I, like I said, I do see it happening. I just same as you wish it could happen in a more grander space. Do you have any aspirations to like do that work now that you're out of the clinical space? Yeah, I, I do. I would love to. I mean, I'd love to get back in schools in some capacity. I worked as a school social worker for a little while and I loved it, but I didn't love the way a social worker was being um, utilized in the school. I felt like we could be doing a lot more. So mm. I would love to bring more attention to school. I mean, I do a lot of parent workshops and things like that in hopes that the parents will take the tools home to their kids. Mm. And I do believe they will and do in some capacity. But my hope is at some point to be able to do some sort of like, whether it's group therapy or workshops with parents with their kids present, where it's almost like a live, like coaching type thing where they can both kind of have that dialogue. Cause I think we often teach to the kids and then we teach to the parents, but we don't teach to them together. Mm. I like that. Yeah. And it goes back to the sort of like, let's have parents and kids have the language, like be sort right. of witness to the language that's happening. And yeah, I love that. Yeah, I, I just, I've been thinking about it a lot lately because, you know, because of the workshops I've been doing in colleges and I just, I don't know if you can relate to this. I'm sure you can, but like just wanting to do more, like, like being so sensitive and feeling and overwhelmed and, and, and dismayed by everything and all of it and wanting, to, you know, having to remind myself that it's one heart at a time, but also like wanting more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, anytime there's any type of crisis, I'm like, what can I do? I want to do everything. And a lot of times I don't have the capacity to do it, whether it's emotionally or whether it's just physically, I don't know how to do it or can't, but there's sure. always somebody that will do it. And I think to your point about working with a lot of college kids, what you're doing though is you're grooming the next generation of parents in some regard. So when those college kids grow up and do have kids of their own, if they choose to, because not everyone wants to have kids, they will have the language to have those conversations with kids. So my hope is that it'll hope just, so. that part of it will get a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. You're right. I know. It's hard. Uh, trust me. I'm not positive all the time at all, but I think, we're playing one this crazy game of life, I guess, in some capacity, and it's hard and sucky and beautiful and fun all at once. It's all the things. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Absolutely. So you mentioned ADHD. Do you work with a lot of neurodiverse kids? I do. I'm pulling away from that a little bit in my private practice work, but I do work with probably seven kids right now on mm. that most of them usually have an ADHD diagnosis. I worked with a lot of kids who had autism for a long time and I love that generation. I just don't think it's as conducive to like teletherapy right now and we're not doing mm, it in person. Yeah. So it's just kind of a thing back and forth. But the beautiful thing about like being a therapist is like I can change my mind and I can change kind of who I want to work with and, you know, explore different things. It's also about just kind of an energy thing to me too, is if I talk to a parent and I feel like their child and I will be a good fit and I'll go for it. But right. I have a friend who is like an ADHD um, expert. So I like to kind of send people her way. There you go. Yeah. It's good to have expertise, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I, I think I would, you know, as a therapist, I would feel pulled. And I think you mentioned this earlier, pulled to like, 
everyone comes in my door, you're my, you know, you're my new client, right? Like I couldn't yeah. say no, but like, I think, as you said, boundaries and say no and, and understanding what, you know, what our energy is serving and how we can truly sort of show up in the best way that we uniquely know how. And then, and then of course, having the ability to refer. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a process. When I worked yeah. at the clinic, when I first said I would have like 30 clients, they could be, they run the gamut. And, but that gets really exhausting. And I also think I'm just not the best therapist for certain types of clients. And I believe people should get therapy. With that being said, because there is like a shortage of therapists in a lot of places, if I feel like I can handle it and they can't find a therapist, then I usually will, you know, take somebody for a little bit just until they couldn't transfer. Because I think if you're mm-hmm. reaching out and you can't find somebody, that's awful. So, yeah. you know, it's got to kind of figure out what works best for you and the client. Exactly. So I have one more like area that I want to explore, which is, and you sort of briefly mentioned it a couple of times, which is the pandemic, right? Like, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I don't have kids, my wife and I do not have kids, but all of our friends do. And, and it's of varying ages, right? From four to 16. And this, the predominant conversation has been around like, are kids going back to school? Are they not? Are they going to be over Zoom again? Can we just get back in the classroom? That's scary. Uh, do, are we wearing masks? Is there a mask mandate? Like there's all this sort of yeah, anxious stuff going around in, in regards to the pandemic and school and stuff. Like how has that been as a therapist witnessing that stuff and having those conversations? It's been really challenging and new in a way. I just had this conversation earlier because it's the first time in my lifetime, maybe other than 9-11, but I was a kid where there's a collective trauma going on where it's traumatic for the therapist and it's traumatic for the client and the parent. So yeah, I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, I started two social groups for kids where we would just so they have socialization with other kids because they were missing that being homeschooled and whatever and on remote schooling and all of that. So that was really helpful. I will say the large majority of kids that I've worked with have adapted well to like the policies, like whether it's a mask, not mask. The hardest part really has been the socialization aspect. If they are in school, about having to kind of be with their pod and not getting to play with the other kids in other classes. But as far as the anxiety piece, yeah, I mean, there are kids who have never had anxiety before and they are struggling with a lot of anxious thoughts because there's a lot of unknowns. Their parents are saying one thing, what they're seeing on the internet is another thing. Policies are ever changing. Schools are changing. As far as like mass mandates and going back to school, pretty much none of the kids I work with care about the mask. They're like, they'll wear them. They won't wear them. It was awkward in the beginning, but they're used to it. It's a lot of parents and whatever their political stances that have kind of infiltrated that a little bit. Mm. I, I, the hard part education wise has been some parents have still wanted their kids to succeed and do really well education wise. And it was really hard. I mean, kids that are being home, and having to rely on the computer, kids are not supposed to be on the computer for eight hours a day and right. it's exhausting and you don't have the same access to teachers. So it's hard. I mean, in New York, their kids are going back, but with a mask mandate, that's kind of what's been going on right now, but I don't know if that'll change. So I think the hard part has been the changes 
And then for kids who are transitioning, whether you're going to middle school or high school or graduating, that has been probably the hardest because you either weren't getting a chance to say goodbye or you weren't getting the time to transition the way we hope everyone will. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, big changes and stuff can feel uh, scary, right? And and mm-hmm. and take you out of your anchors and your comfort zones and all that stuff. It and it seems to me like as a parent, like if I were a parent, you know, sort of hunkering down or sort of doubling up on, okay, what can I do to help my kid feel safe and confident and secure and um, like we got like we can weather this storm regardless of what happens, right? Yeah, I actually, the in May of 2020, I believe, I did a workshop kind of on this. It was actually really geared towards like the pandemic and a lot of like racism and things that were coming up a lot in the media because I wanted to help parents have the dialogue to talk about that hard stuff with kids. And that was really the bulk of it was setting up kind of the blueprint for how to have these hard conversations. And it's kind of like what I spoke about before of like, if you don't know, research together. But I think more concretely, it's like, let your kid know what the expectations are. Set them with them. Like, if your child's always gotten A's, whether they wanted to or not, let them know, like, it's okay to get a B. Like, we're not going to be upset with you because your kid is already stressed about that. And that's like a whole big topic with grades. Do they matter? All of that. But I think that's coming up more now. Like, do you expect your kid to hand in every homework assignment now? If I was a parent, I wouldn't. But that's Mm. me. And I'm not telling somebody how to parent, but I am saying to have those conversations and make sure your kid understands and have them be involved in kind of the picking and the choosing. And also like parents and kids being home, like parents who work from home and kids going home from school, it was a lot of time together (laughs) that wasn't necessarily good. And it also wasn't time to like enjoy each other either. It was like just a lot of anxiety in one room. So it was important to like, differentiate the spaces. I mean, I've had parents where I'm like, put a sign on your door that tells your kid when they can come in and when they can't. Like there were so many things you had to kind of figure out more tangibly too. But yeah, it all kind of goes back to being open to the dialogues. Yeah. I love that. Um, Okay. I love that. I, (laughs) I, I feel good about what we covered. Um, I want to talk about empathy heroes now. How does that feel? Yeah, let's go for it. So we always wrap up the show talking about empathy heroes, people in our lives who are deeply compassionate, feely people, could be even characters from stories. <laughs> uh, I will go first to give you a second to think about your empathy hero. My empathy hero this week is my friend, Bernie Dixon, uh, a new friend, really. And she is someone who is... um she has two uh, kids who are neurodiverse and her special needs. Uh, I think she, that's the word she used and um, just a huge heart and uh, a huge bountiful sort of buckets full of creativity and empathy and compassion. And we've been friends sort of on, on Instagram for a time and we were able to get together just this past weekend to go for a run together because we're both runners and it was wonderful and it just felt like seamless and it's weird and hard to create friends as adults. (laughs) I'm a 40 year old man creating new friends, but like I've also been 
uh, needing it. I've been yearning for friendship and connection. So it really felt good and it felt just safe and special. And so I wanted to shout out my friend Bernie uh, Dixon, who uh, is wonderful. She's my empathy hero. I love that. Yes. I honestly, I'm really grateful to have a lot of people in my life that are very empathetic. And I was going to go with my grandfather who I do love, but I actually am going to switch it to like a celebrity because there's a reason. So Sophia Bush was on Mm. one true hill, Chicago PD, that kind of thing. And the reason I choose her is not because I think she's the world's greatest actress, anything like that because she uses her platform to spread information, politically awareness. She has a podcast where she spreads information and it always comes across so empathetic and so caring and so digestible for, for people like people who maybe don't have as much knowledge or for younger people. And I think that's really refreshing to see somebody with such a platform to utilize their social media specifically for this. And it's her personal social media account. It's not her. She doesn't have a separate one for advocacy. Yeah. And I think it's cool to see somebody infiltrate both those things into their lives. So, yeah, I, you know, I think if I were to have a role model that was like a celebrity and I've never really had before, that would be a really good one to have. Nice. Yeah. No, I, I follow Sophia. She's, she's doing wonderful work. Uh, agreed completely. That's a great one. Uh, okay, Erica, where can the Feely Humans out there learn more about the work you're doing, connect with you, all of that jazz? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram at Therapy with Erica. You can follow me there. And then my website is therapywitherica.com. Oh, therapyericaz.com. I forgot the Z. But anyway, and yeah, I mean, I'm available for parenting consults or, you know, I like I said, I run workshops or therapy if you're in the New York area. So, but if anything else, just connect with me on social media. I love to talk to new people. Amazing. Well, listeners, those links will be in the show notes for this episode at feelyhuman.co. Erica, thank you so much for being a part of Yumi Empathy and sharing your voice and all of that loveliness. Thank you so much. This has been so fun. I appreciate the openness. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. And to you listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here, we're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring, pale blue dot, we have each other. It's you, me, empathy. Empathy.